I should have expected that. Um, for those that would like to go back and review um, the presentation from Sunday, I'm told that that is now available on podcast. So you can go to their website, livinggracelv.org. Is that right? Yeah. And um, then you can access the message that way. And it may be on the, the iTunes podcast as well if you run searches that way. So uh, tonight is going to be rather informal. I was going to talk for, um, well, I was going to talk for maybe up to a half an hour here just to kind of carry over the conversation from Sunday and present positive case for Christianity. And um, I'd like to start off by thanking Pastor Richie for the invitation to come and present. It's been um, a rewarding experience, and Sunday was wonderful. Um, Everyone was welcoming and liked the message, liked what we had to say, and I hope that all of you uh, were able to uh, benefit from it, and hopefully the the word can get out, and folks are interested in learning more about the existence of God, maybe tonight, maybe you hear something that you you feel like you can take with you as you engage and evangelize um, atheists out there. Does anyone have family members that profess to be atheist? Yeah, that's, that's the hard that's hard. And it seems like over half of us um, are like that. But uh, it's, it is a, a reality, and, and it makes Thanksgiving very awkward sometimes. Although I'm told statistically fewer people are having that kind of conversation at Thanksgiving. I don't know why, but <clears throat> they were charting it something to do with politics, uh, that people, fewer people are talking politics around the Thanksgiving season. And they always say, you know, religion is tethered to politics. And it's one of the no-nos that grandma doesn't want you talking about around the dinner table. So I'm wondering if there's a, there's a, a similar trend where uh, people aren't necessarily talking about this. So <clears throat> Sunday was basically just to present what atheism is initially. And as I defined it, it's the view that there is no such thing as God or gods. Okay? There are no such beings as gods. So it's an affirmative claim, phrased in the negative, but it's affirming something about the world. Namely, it is such that there is no such thing as God. So don't be bamboozled by someone that might say, well, you know, I'm disbelieving something, therefore I have nothing to prove. But if you said that about planets or people, you know, is there someone in that room? And I said, there's definitely not someone in that room. I'm making a claim. And I should be prepared to back that up. Otherwise, my answer should be, I don't know. Um, But it seems like, I mean, atheism proper does indeed make a claim, uh, negative or positive. It doesn't matter. If you make a claim to know something, then you have to support it and back it up. So I tried to, after defining atheism, I did try to uh, give you two reasons uh, why I thought that the worldview was inadequate. And tonight, we're going to wrap that up by turning the tables and kind of look at my reason for why there's someone behind the door, Um, more positive reasons. Although clearly what I talked about on Sunday could be tweaked a little to be um, affirming the existence of God. Like when I talked about objective moral values and said that naturalism cannot accommodate or account for the existence of objective moral values and duties, you could easily frame that as, If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. However, objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore it follows God exists. I just chose a more modest thesis on Sunday because um, I didn't want to 
overstate the case in the short amount of time that I had, because I was really compressing a lot of information on Sunday. A little bit of breathing room tonight. Our ultimate objective is to open the floor up to questions um, related to defending Christianity, uh, wherever that might take us. I suppose we can be rather flexible with that, whether it's dealing with atheism, agnosticism, or general questions uh, of skepticism and doubt and that sort of thing. I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm a philosopher, but I have dabbled a lot in theology. In fact, when I was, uh, one of the graduate schools I attended was Fuller Theological Seminary, so I have a year under my belt, but I never went all the way to get my master's thesis in theology, uh, not thesis, master's degree in theology. Um, I migrated over instead to philosophy and finished that up, okay, and went, went the whole route there. So I like to think I'm probably informed enough to be dangerous, uh, and what I don't know, I will let you know, and then hopefully steer you in the right direction for further information. Okay, so without further ado, um, let me give you a treat. First of all, I want to point you to a website exclusive to Living Grace Fultz. Yes, you're going to appreciate this, Pastor Richie. This is a trip down memory lane here, because, uh, <laughs> because if you were to, you can't get to this site this full link here without typing it in manually. It's not on my home page, in other words. I did this just in the last couple of days thinking, hey, this would be kind of fun. Because what a lot of you probably don't realize is um, my ministry partners and I, we used to have a, a college group that would meet here. And so we recorded a lot of our sessions. And so I thought you might appreciate that if you were to go to the website, there are recorded podcasts of a lot of these sessions, particularly as they're related to defending Christianity. I just thought I'd share it with you real quick. Like I have, oh, I have a direct link right to the podcast right now on that page from Sunday. And below that, I have a series that I did uh, on defending Christianity. Kind of hard to read, I know. So it gives you an excuse to go and look it up and see what I'm talking about. But I, you know, I, it, it's in order. I kind of, you could take your time with these, download them, listen to them to your, to your heart's content, because I know you want to stop listening to music. It's just not doing it for you. You'd rather hear me ramble on. So here's your opportunity to do that. So you could um, proceed through these various parts, beginning with um, a lesson in critical thinking. And then I go, and this is, this is all obviously free to you. Uh, critical thinking, faith and reason, on cosmological arguments, the Leibnizian cosmological argument. And then I go on to talk about other arguments for God's existence, the design argument in its various forms. And then it ends with the resurrection of Jesus. And there I preface it with a, a lesson on miracles. Then I have a series we did called The Big Five, in which it was dealing with the five uh, top objections to Christianity. Did God command moral atrocities in the Old Testament? That's a big one. The new atheists are touting. How can God exist when there's evil in the world? You might find that interesting. Um, how can God exist when there's, uh, pardon me, that's part two. So there's two parts to that because there's a lot to talk about. Um, where, uh, where did God come from? And other questions on cosmology. Why does God seem so hidden? And then finally, questions about God and the existence of the divine attributes, the properties that God has. And I talk about comparative religions. What's that? The site? sguthrie.net slash 
Living Grace. You don't have to put WW. Yeah, that's uh, so 1990s. <laughs> the World Wide Web. We don't even call it that anymore. My first degree was in electronic engineering. I actually know what some of these, I actually know what HTTP stands for, you know, that sort of thing. But no, we don't use any of that. It just kind of, it knows it already on its own. If you're curious, it's hypertext transfer protocol. Big deal. Okay, so comparative religions. Um, I got a message on the prosperity gospel. I've got two parts on my discussion of Mormonism. You might like that one. I, the first part is I actually present a case on behalf of Mormonism and kind of leave the audience hanging. And then part two is a response, um, a thorough response to uh, the case made. And then general apologetics. What is apologetics? The who, what, where, when, and why? That was recorded, actually. That's the only one here that was recorded at a, at a different church. But I wanted to throw it in because I've been throwing around that term. You probably heard it and might like to know a little bit more about what that means. So avail yourself of that. Share it if you'd like. And... Um, it's not on the home website uh, because I, I'm, even though it, my, the main hub of my website is primarily devoted toward professional publications, although it involves um, some apologetic work that's posted on there. In fact, I've got some stuff I did with Pastor Richie. We, we did a, a Q&A session down at UNLV with, um, I think we, Derek Nieder, I think we, we uh, joined forces with Calvary Chapel and they were hosting a thing down there where they were, uh, it was a huge auditorium or big room, and, and they were having all sorts of folks. They were doing what we were doing tonight. They were, it was a total open forum, ask whatever questions you wanted, and then there, were, as a pa there was a panel of four of us up there kind of taking turns interacting with those questions. Yeah, you just have to, if you want to access this particular page, then uh, you have to punch in the living grace part after the, the root directory, yeah. Esca3.net slash livinggrace.org. Livinggrace LV. Uh, I'm sorry. No, you don't need the LV. That's your website. Livinggrace, full stop. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, then, I'm going to... Oh, uh, the bottom there, I forgot. I, and then a little thing on uh, heavy issues. We called this series, Where Angels Fear to Tread, where we talk about ethics, sex, and politics. So if the other stuff wasn't controversial enough, um, there'll be plenty to enjoy there. All within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. We're not doing anything heretical there. But you're free to disagree, obviously, with various conclusions. All right. <clears throat> One argument for the existence of God. This, when I did my, got my master's degree in philosophy, I specialized in this argument when I did my thesis. And... Um, I didn't come up with the argument. Uh, the argument actually originates from some Islamic, Christian, and um, Jewish philosophers during the Middle Ages. And it was recently resurrected by William Lane Craig during his doctoral work in the 70s. And I'd like to kind of just briefly, very briefly share it with you. Because I think it's a profound, profoundly good argument for the existence of God that is specifically cognizant of contemporary science, because your atheist friends will probably tell you, I just want to go where the science tells me, or I just I believe in science and not religion, or, or something of that sort, where they're trying to pit knowledge up against uh, Christianity in some way. 
So you can turn the tables in a really nice way and enlist um, the agency of science to actually validate how the uh, world, the universe that we have, actually points to the existence of God. Specifically, science is on our side in terms of premise two. Because once upon a time, it was real easy to say the universe didn't begin to exist. So the argument here is, premise one, if the universe began to exist, then there is an outside cause for its existence. If the universe began to exist, space-time, if it began, then there must be something outside or beyond it that caused it into being. Because something can't cause itself into being. Right? It's, the, it's the ultimate in bootstrapping. So that can't be the case. If the universe was caused, something else did it. That's kind of an, a relatively uncontroversial premise, I think. Um, but I only have to establish it probabilistically. You know, if something suddenly shows up, you know, if um, I'm talking and a, and a gorilla pops into existence dribbling a basketball wearing a UNLV jersey, we might be thinking they're getting desperate for talent maybe. Um, <laughs> but would we all just kind of go about our business and carry on? No. I mean, obviously that cries out for some kind of explanation. Something brought it into being. But we have a universe that came into being, right? So that does cry out for an explanation. So I think premise one is vastly more probable than not. And yes, stuffy philosophers do try to object to that first premise um, to no avail, though. It's um, why is it what makes the beginning of the universe so special that it suddenly doesn't need a cause, but everything else does? You can never get away with that playing a game at the table. Hey, where'd you get that ace card from? Well, it just popped into being uncaused out of nowhere because that sort of thing happens around here. You know, no, I, <laughs> you, you would be attacked. <laughs> so I think the first premise is sound. The second premise is probably the more controversial one in a sense. Um, However, contemporary science is on the side of that premise because, as we're, we've all heard in one fashion or another, uh, the current model on the table is what's called Big Bang cosmology, not to be confused with the television program. But Big Bang cosmology, this was actually a, a derogatory term that, came, that Fred, Sir Fred Hoyle came up, the famous Cambridge astronomer, in trying to explain what the uh, Big Bang was, talking about the universe coming into being from a singular, um, almost infinitely dense point and suddenly expanding outward into a, the, the known universe, you know, he likened that to some kind of explosion. And so the Big Bang, he, he called it that, and it just sort of stuck, um, became a term of endearment. Well, <clears throat> it's, uh, it goes without saying that modern cosmology doesn't dispute the reality of, of the Big Bang. I know some Christians aren't particularly keen on Big Bang cosmology, so I would just say if you don't agree with Big Bang cosmology for whatever reason, I would just say then uh, if you're presenting this to a friend who's an atheist, um, I wouldn't say, well, I don't believe in the Big Bang. I would just say according to contemporary science, you know, and you can cite all of the big minds on it from Einstein to Hawking um, quantum physicists, non-quantum physicists, they all agree that this universe came into being at that particular um, singularity. Okay, So in that, now we've mapped it, 
with some precision. We now know almost 13.77 billion years ago, that's when it came into being. Again, if you don't side with that particular cosmology, no problem. You just point out, this is what contemporary science is saying. Okay. Because I guarantee your, your atheist friends accept that. I happen to accept that, but that's something we can disagree with um, within the confines of you know, Christian freedom. Just like disagreeing about rapture or the millennium and all of that in the book of Revelation. Because so. Genesis just doesn't settle that question. It leaves it theologically open. At any rate, so uh, the science is definitely on the side of Big Bang cosmology, which is why when you do talk to cosmologists who try to propose various models, they're not explaining, they're, they're not showing the Big Bang didn't happen. They're trying to show different models about how the Big Bang came about. And uh, one model right now is what's called the multiverse model, which is talking about kicking the problem upstairs. Um, so this universe began to exist, so when all else fails, posit another universe, right? Uh, oh, it turns out this universe began. There must be some kind of mother universe or super universe that, that brought this one into being. And philosophers and scientists are, you know, right now we're looking at this going, so <clears throat> you're making this grand metaphysical commitment to say that there's a super universe when there's no direct or indirect evidence for it other than you're trying to explain where the universe came from. Yeah, so, yeah, right, <laughs> and it's also a dream, no. but it's, um, it's amazing because the atheist doesn't want to afford the theist the same sort of permission. You know, you posit that there's a transcendent thing that brought the universe into existence. That's what the multiverse is. It's some transcendent thing that brought this universe into existence. So it has just as many commitments as theism does. Uh, but I do think that... Um, of course, we could say more about that. There is no multiverse model on the table, uh, first of all, that really makes a whole lot of sense in terms of reality. Um, it it uh, satisfies the mathematics and such, but in terms of trying to work it out realistically, it's difficult because you have to, you have to reinterpret thing, things like time and in infinity and things of that sort, which force you to do some gymnastics. So I won't bore you with the scientific details on that. Just take my word for it. Um, that's where science is today. So both of those premises then are, I think, more likely than not, which means that the conclusion is true. In fact, if you accept the premises, the conclusion's necessarily true. The universe has an outside cause for its existence. Now, the natural question that arises is, okay, why do I have to think that cause is God? Isn't that jumping the gun just a bit? Yeah, it would be if we were at a full stop here. But let's do a little detective work about what the cause of the universe might look like without any preconceptions on the table. Let's, you know, think Sherlock Holmes here. So the universe itself was brought into existence, okay, at the singularity. What does that mean? Well, the universe is time and space. They came into being with the Big Bang. So whatever the cause is, it must be outside of time, and it must be beyond space. So it's a spaceless, timeless cause. Okay. If it's spaceless, it cannot be material because only physical things occupy space, and space only has to do with physical things. So the cause is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. The universe only came into existence 
according to our best dating right now, 13.77 billion years ago. It hasn't always been around. Now, there's only two ways that could happen. Either all of the conditions for this universe were present from infinity. If that were true, then our universe would be infinitely old as well. Think of turning on uh, the heat to boil water. If that heat has been on for all eternity, anything sitting on it, a pot of water or whatever, would have been boiling for all eternity if that pot of water had been around forever. So if all of the conditions have been eternally present or infinitely present, material, mechanical conditions present, then the universe we're inhabiting right now should be infinitely old as well. But it's not. So that can't be what brought it about. You have event causes like that, and your only other option is a personal cause. Things and agents. That's what events or things and agents. That's really all you have as your options here. Can't be an event or the universe would be eternal. Must be an agent. So already now the cause is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and personal. And we can actually add to that if we want to get into design arguments and talk about the architecture of the universe and how finely tuned the conditions are for life. That's, again, more probable on theism than it is any other world system, particularly atheism. So we have independent reasons to think that the cause of the universe is personal. So all, it looks like we... Um, by, def- by uh, doing a little detective work, it seems like the attributes of the cause of the universe look favorably toward substantiating God as the cause. Now, if, as a last-ditch effort, somebody wants to say, well, um, I accept that the cause must have all those attributes, but why do, do I have to think it's God, really, as you've defined it? But I think we'd have to confess at that stage that it's almost a distinction without a difference, right? I mean, what else... What else would it be? It would be a peculiar form of atheism if you said, I believe in a transcendent, spaceless, timeless, personal cause of the universe, but I don't believe in God. That would be cognitive dissonance, I think. Okay, so moving forward. Try to be quick as I can here as well without um, sacrificing content. Okay, another argument. This one is... um, so the, the first argument I gave you, sometimes called the, cosmolo- the Kalam cosmological argument, it's a particular species of cosmological argument, you might say, okay, that only gets me to God, but why your God? Why, why, is it, why not the God of Islam? Why not the, the, the gods of Buddhism or Hinduism or what have you? Um, why must I think that Christianity in particular is true? It's a very partisan um, perspective of, of the God at work here. So I think that's a legitimate question, and so I come prepared with additional evidence to back that up. Simple argument, but it's filling out the details here. Ironically, the devil's in the details, but it's about Jesus, (laughs) but still. So three-step argument, premise one. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. I don't think atheists are going to dispute that. In fact, that's what I think they would be willing to acknowledge wholesale. You know, hey, if you could establish to my satisfaction Jesus was raised from the dead, it's got to be all bets off. Christianity's true. This was the attitude of the Apostle Paul as well in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, Jesus be not raised and your faith is in vain. That's what he declared. So 
Um, I think we're all on the same page. We don't dispute that first premise. We don't need to say much more about that. The key premise here, obviously, is the factual question, did Jesus rise again from the dead? So we'll have to do a little bit of heavy lifting here, but bear with me. And um, again, you can chase up some of these resources like on the website that I just gave you where I talk about the resurrection more in detail. Um, we really massage these issues a lot more. And so if you, if you like what you see tonight, just see it as more like a table of contents. You can chase it up in those podcasts or in the reading resources I gave on Sunday. So the first thing I want to um, suggest to you is that the Gospels are reliable historical witnesses. Um, Gospels in particular function like memoirs, actually. That comes from Justin Martyr, who perceived that the Gospels were like memoirs. The reason for this is because uh, you might, a, a critic might be tempted to say, well, the Gospels, maybe they're just made-up stories, maybe they're mythologies, maybe they're lies, they're tall tales or folklore or what have you. The problem with just simply saying that is that there's a, you have to have literary justification to do that. You can't just say that. Um, that is to say that there's a genre of literature that the Gospels are. And from our best approximation by every New Testament scholar worth his or her salt, the Gospels parallel Greco-Roman biography. That doesn't mean they're just straight-up biographies. There is a little bit of apologetics going on in the Gospels. But at the very least, they're memoirs. Memoirs meaning they're notes taken um, about their goings-on with this person of Jesus from their own um, vantage point. I think the gospel names that are attached to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are accurate descriptors of who the witnesses are, but you don't have to commit yourself to that. You know, it, it's only necessary that the, the, the gospels are witnesses. Uh, whether the person's name is Matthew or Frederick, um, it, it wouldn't matter at the end of the day. Okay, it's just It only matters that it's... Um, written around, roughly around the time in which they were written, Matthew probably around 60, 70 A.D., uh, Mark likely prior to that, around 50 to 60 A.D., I think, and uh, John comes the latest, Luke in the 60s. Uh, and then, of course, Luke also wrote Acts. So Acts is part of that testimony as well. Now, in terms of their reliability, I could take this in a number of directions. Um, the regular stock responses to talk about the archaeology of scripture and to, um, you know, how accurate it is, how it lines up with the geography and archaeological discoveries and that sort of thing. But I want to focus on kind of an underrepresented phenomenon. And it has to do with this thing called undesigned coincidences. It's just really making a, 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 a comeback, a renaissance here in the contemporary world, and I want to share it with you. It's not my brainchild. It actually comes from William Paley, and um, history would see him as the one who came up with the so-called watchmaker argument for design. This was just a few centuries ago. Paley is the one that stumbled upon this phenomenon in uh, both the Old and New Testaments, really focusing on the New Testament. And what an undesigned coincidence is, as I've tried to define it up here in brief, it's hard to do in brief, is to say that it, it's, a, it's what happens when you have independent eyewitness testimony to something. And maybe it's best not just simply to read the definition, but to kind of give you an example. So suppose, Dave, I'm going to pick on you for a second. So suppose, <clears throat> suppose you and I are at a friend's house. So there's a, there's a third person there. 
And <clears throat> there's a, um, at some point, we're at this person's house, there is some kind of altercation where somebody ends up severely injured. And so there's a, a police report that's being taken. And so Dave and I are, obviously we were there, so we're, we're eyewitnesses to what was going on. There were other people there too, okay? And maybe the assailant was neither of us, it was somebody else. So we're eyewitnesses to that. So the police officer takes us into different rooms and asks us questions about the event. So Dave says, yeah, well, we were, um, you know, we, we were, I saw that they were kind of messing around and then it, it got ugly and suddenly the guy picked up a frying pan and belted the guy on the head and hurt him pretty bad. And uh, this, this happened in the living room. That's where the body was found and all of that. This happened in the living room. So then the officer's asking me about it. And, I, in, and basically what I'm saying is, is, well, I didn't see much. I was really kind of in the other room. I heard stuff. But, you know, there was a lot going on because we were renovating the kitchen at the time. And so we had a lot of stuff pulled out. And there was a lot of noise and stuff from the banging pots and pans and whatever from stacking them. Now, here's the thing. A police officer hearing both of these testimonies, or a detective hearing both of these testimonies, you wouldn't think too much of it, other than the subtlety of the fact that Dave, when he had reported to the officer what happened, he said um, that the the fellow was hit with a frying pan in the living room. Now, Now, why would that be? It's sort of like you're thinking about it going, well, you don't just have frying pans lying in your living room, right? But when he was interviewing me, Incidentally, I had just pointed out, we're renovating the kitchen. We're stacking pots and pans and shuffling them around. Oh, so what probably happened was stuff was getting stacked out in the living room while you're doing work in the kitchen. So the officer or the detective can put two and two together. It proves that we're not corroborating. Because if we were corroborating and forging this story, Dave would have made sure to have mentioned that. He hit him with a frying pan. Oh, and he got the frying pan from the kitchen, which was moved out into the living room because he was stacking. No, no. It's an unanswered question in his testimony. Maybe he didn't even know why. He just kind of showed up at the last minute and didn't know what was going on, but he knew there was a frying pan in the living room. It pretty much happened right away after he arrived. This is what an undesigned coincidence is. Nobody designed it. Nobody purposed to, to create this oddity in Dave's account and then match it with some incidental passing reference I made in my account. This is how uh, historical eyewitness testimony, when put together, looks. That's what a memoir looks like. People who are forging documents try to dot every I and cross every T. They don't want to leave questions unanswered. They don't want to leave them. Dave, you might have even asked, where did you get a frying pan from? I don't know. It was just lying there. I have no idea. That doesn't make sense to me either. But hearing me say off the cuff without even be prompted. I just happened to see, well, yeah, we were renovating the kitchen and so on and so forth. You know, oh, that explains it. Well, we actually have episodes in the Gospels where something like that is going on. Let me just share a couple with you. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, this is Matthew speaking here now. At that time telling us, he's writing this, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers at work are at work in him. How in the world would Matthew have known what Herod said about the fame of Jesus to his servants? So you ever ask that question? No one's really asked that question. You just when you read it, you pass over it as just part of the detail. We're so used to the authors being omniscient about what they're writing about. But Matthew says something that was a private conversation. But if you turn over to a different gospel, Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, Luke doesn't depend on Matthew. If there's any dependence at all, it's all on Mark. But Luke and Matthew are writing independently, okay, by all lights. Listen to what it says in Luke 8, 3. And Joanna, this is in unrelated to what, just, what you just saw. This is just talking off the cuff, off something else. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many, many others who provided for them out of their means. This means that Joanna is the wife of Herod's servant. So if you had thought to catch Matthew on a historical foible here, hey, how would you have known what the servant said? Luke answers that because Joanna was part of the in crowd. She's a Jesus follower. That information got carried over. She told them, and Matthew must have picked it up. But nobody reading this would have thought to, to ask that question. Matthew wasn't writing here to create some artificial corroboration with something Luke was going to say, you know, in a different context, unrelated. Nobody makes the connection here, but it answers that question. Another one here, John 18, 36. So now we go to the Gospel of John. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not uh, be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. But why didn't Pilate point out that his servants were fighting? Because you remember, particularly in the Gospel of John, um, during the fight, Malchus, the high priest, a servant, got his ear cut off. There was a debate. How could they say this? If my kingdom were not of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered. Wouldn't Malchus have shown up with his bloody ear going, uh, there was fighting, hello? Well, I think we know the answer to this. But you don't find it in John. John doesn't mention the healing of Malchus's ear. But Luke does in 2251. He says, um, Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Basically, now there was no material evidence that there was a fight. Which is why Malchus did not stand up and say, yeah, there was a fight. He was healed. So there was no material evidence. That's why Jesus was in a position where he could say that. All right, well, I'm going I'm to leave it at that. I could, I could keep going here. These things are fun. I, citing Josephus there. But... Um, if you love what you're seeing here, I highly recommend my friend Lydia McGrew's book, uh, Hidden in Plain View. Um, just came out a couple of years ago. She just went to town on finding some of these, the, the best ones. If you want a free resource, then Google Books, um, 
John James Blunt, or J.J. Blunt, and he wrote a book just simply called Undesigned Coincidences. I think he's an 18th century chap, so uh, when you look him up, just know you're going to get 18th century work. So uh, it's not going to read quite like it does today, but it's very understandable. Hidden, oh, Lydia McGrew, M-C-G-R-E-W, Lydia McGrew, Hidden in Plain View. Okay, so now I want to move on with the argument then. Getting back to this, I want to focus on, again, defending that second premise, taking then the Gospels as sufficiently reliable testimony. That doesn't mean they have to be completely and utterly inerrant. I think as Christians we tend to accept that, but in terms of the standard of history, what qualifies as history, nobody expects historical documents to be free of all error. They just have to be reliable. That's a different standard. Okay? So if someone wants to say, well, this part of the gospel narrative is um, not very reliable, it looks wrong or something of that sort. Okay. As long as it's not pervasive and substantial, you know, if it's just a minor detail, then... There's, there's, no, um, there's no problem. And I'm not, I'm not even convinced you'll find minor details. I'm definitely not convinced you'll find any major details. They all agree on the historical core of what's going on. I know that accounts will say things, oh, well, there was one angel. No, there was two angels. But those aren't mutually exclusive. Where there's two angels, there's one angel, right? So uh, you don't have to do a whole lot of gymnastics to figure out things of that sort. All right, so... <clears throat> First thing I want to point out in defense of that second premise, remember I'm defending now the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. Important point. Jesus was publicly executed by or under Pontius Pilate. Nobody doubts this. Even the old Jesus seminar, the defunct Jesus seminar said, there's one absolute fact about Jesus that we can know. It's that he was publicly crucified. Okay. Well, you can find um, Josephus uh, makes, makes, me- yes, makes mention of that. Uh, Suetonius, a Roman historian. Um, Pliny the Younger, I think, might make reference to it. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that virtually nobody disputes. Okay? You have a few, I dare say, strange individuals that, like Richard Carrier, I think he's trying to make a big deal about himself, trying to substantiate the idea that Jesus didn't exist. But when you've got the atheistic New Testament scholarly community come, like Bart Ehrman saying, hey, stop it. Jesus existed. Get over it. You know, you know you're, you're fighting a losing fight. Christians get made fun of because we have young earth creationism. I got news for you. Atheism has something that, that gives it an embarrassing face too, and it's these guys. I think Jesus never existed. That's just not, that's not the um, position of... of <laughs> of New Testament scholarship, whether they're critical, hostile, or friendly. So Jesus was publicly executed, no disputing that. Um, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That's significant. Why? Because if he was buried in the tomb of somebody whose name we know, we know where he was buried. That's important information. Not only that, the person Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting figure in his own right. Because Joseph of Arimathea is part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is kind of like a Supreme Court. These guys voted to condemn Jesus. These guys are on the side of the scribes and Pharisees. 
that there's a Jesus sympathizer among them. It's, it, it seemed, it's sort of like if, if someone finds out so-and-so might be a Trump supporter. It's like you think that suddenly it's either going to lose their job or something's going to happen. It's the same thing. It's like you didn't just come out and say, I follow Jesus. But his name is mentioned. It's noted. And you don't make him up unless he really is on the Sanhedrin. You don't invent a Supreme Court, a Supreme Court justice to try to say, well, this person was responsible for it. You just made him up. Because obviously that rumor is going to get squelched real quickly. But the fact that he's named and he's a prominent member in the Jewish community, it couldn't have made it up. It must very well be he was a sympathizer. And everybody knew it. And we know where the tomb was. Another key piece of evidence is that Jesus was seen alive after his execution and public burial. Or the, uh, yeah, it's public execution, I meant to say, and burial. So that after he was buried, um, there were a number of different circumstances where Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 gives uh, a list. As many as 500 saw Jesus at a given time, which is kind of interesting because Matthew 28, I think, or uh, 20, is it Matthew 28? In Matthew, near the end of Matthew's gospel, um, he makes mention of the mountainside appearance in Galilee where some doubted, it said, that Jesus appeared. This is the only appearance by appointment. Some scholars actually are connecting the dots thinking that the appearance to the 500 might have been the mountaintop appearance in Matthew. I don't know. The point is, is that you have a number of people. You had skeptics there because it said some didn't believe, which is kind of embarrassing. You don't write that in your... Your, your, your Christian propaganda and say, oh, by the way, the very resurrection of Jesus himself failed to convince people. That's embarrassing. You cover that up if you're trying to forge a hero story here. But nonetheless, it's there. And the Apostle Paul has his Damascus Road experience. He, has, um, uh, he witnesses Christ. And he's an enemy of the faith. What radically changed him? It must be that Jesus literally appeared to him because he was murdering Christians before and suddenly he's joined the cause and willing to die. As were all of the disciples, it, it turns out, willing to die for the cause. You don't die for eyewitness testimony. You might die for a cause, even if the cause is futile or wrong. You don't die defending what you say you saw unless what you saw is legit. <clears throat> um, And I think the most interesting appearance story, it's implied, we don't know. Um, Paul mention, mentions the appearance to James. That's not recorded in the New Testament. There's, uh, James, his brother, that is. That's not recorded in the New Testament. All we know is James is a skeptic. And then at some point, he becomes the pillar in the church, one of the pillars of the church, inexplicably. Like suddenly, he's a, he's a sold-out follower of Jesus. Where did that come from? Well... Paul mentions in his list, James was someone he appeared to. So it must have been he had a resurrection experience. I mean, what would it take to think that your own brother was the Lord, right? So he didn't believe, but something radically changed his mind after Jesus' death. Paul has the clue. It's, uh, he saw him alive after Jesus was dead. 
And then to tie all of this together, we have, of course, the tomb itself being found empty. We know where it was. It's indisputed that he died publicly, was executed. These fanciful attempts to try to say Jesus didn't really die or he swooned and all of that, those are very difficult to explain because um, you, you don't have someone, you don't proclaim victory and show up in a glorious kind of resurrection uh, context if you're half dead and being nursed. I mean, would you, if someone was bandaged up and, you know, straggling and said, I've been raised from the dead, you know, this is a, this is zombie Jesus, that's what he is. But the fact that, he, that they, he was able to proclaim and convince people he'd been gloriously raised from the dead, he wasn't near death. That's not what's going on. He actually did die. They knew what they were doing. <clears throat> At any rate, he was, um, the, the tomb was found empty first by a group of his women disciples. That's important historically as well. Why? Because unfortunately women did not occupy a high rung in the social ladder. Women's testimonies were typically disregarded as, as having any worth whatsoever. Unless, of course, there just was nobody else around. That was just the culture, okay? That's not scripture. That's just how Jewish culture was. And they would say things like, better that the uh, books of the laws be burnt than read by women. And and, awful things like that. So women's testimony were, were, were never considered. But who discovers the empty tomb first? Yes, Mary and friends, right? So they report... Now, this is one of those embarrassing details. You're trying to establish a new religious movement. You're trying to convince the Jews themselves who authored some of this stuff about women and and their testimonies worthless. And yet you're staking your forgery on what women testify to. How is that going to convince your fellow Jewish followers? And then, of course, the male disciples. We have a variety here, and even some are pushing back. We know the story of Doubting Thomas. The eyewitness um, accounts are early. 1 Corinthians 15 probably is uh, based on a tradition, because in there, the, the opening verses, the first few verses, Paul says something like, uh, he gives this three- or four-line testimony about you know, we, this, this is what the scriptures say, that he was buried, that he was, uh, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. It's, that obviously implies the empty tomb. That, um, he said he received, that tradition he received. And when you do the detective work in the New Testament, like in Galatians chapter 1, you find out that he must have received that probably within 18 months to no longer than five years since Jesus' death. He's citing eyewitnesses by name, which you don't do unless they're willing to testify to it. Because you can bet the Jewish establishment and all of the critics and skeptics are going to rush to these people and cross-examine them. But yet, the lists are given right within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses so that they're to be questioned by the hundreds because Paul mentions the 500, and even shows that he is in touch with them, because he says, some have fallen asleep. So he knows who they are. So all of these things, then, um, suggest what I think is best explained by the hypothesis the original disciples themselves gave, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Other attempts to explain it, like, oh, maybe they were hallucinating, Okay, what explains the empty tomb? Now you've got to conjure up a completely different hypothesis for that. 
And, and the appearances of Jesus weren't just visual. They were extramental. They, Jesus ate food and he was manhandled and that sort of thing. It's not hallucin- that's not what you do with hallucinations. By the way, hallucinations, you project things that you already know about. The resurrection of Jesus is unlike anything Jews were prepared for. Resurrection was the return of a dead man in bodily form. Glorified. Typical Jewish belief of the afterlife was when you died, you were either, uh, or maybe you didn't die, you might have been assumed into heaven. Or you might have been a, a, a specter, a ghost perhaps. That's what they actually accuse Jesus of when he first shows up in Luke 24. They suppose that they saw a ghost. So if you were going to hallucinate Jesus, you would not have hallucinated him. You wouldn't hallucinate him against Jewish beliefs and expectations. Because they didn't believe in a physical resurrection until the end of the ages when all of Israel would be brought together. You know that song, um, the, the, the Dry Bones, the Valley of the Dry Bones, right from Ezekiel? That's a vivid illustration and picture of the, the end of the ages. Where everyone gets resurrected in bodily form. Nobody gets resurrected in the middle of history. That's something that happens at the end, at the consummation. So why hallucinate Jesus in physical bodily form resurrected, that runs aground against Jewish beliefs and expectations. All right. So that's my case, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, in brief, like I said, chase up the resources uh, to learn a bit more. And thank you for having me for speaking on these, these issues. So we're going to go ahead and um, open up to any questions that you might have, and I'll do my best to interact um, to, to provide some answers and or resources. So I guess we'll just do this like a classroom if you just want to slip up your hand. I will do that, yes, thank you. I've been asked to repeat the question, so I'm repeating the call to repeat. <laughs> Yeah, so the gentleman's raising the, the uh, point that manuscripts have been found validating historical figures like Plato and Caesar that are uh, dated uh, centuries later, if not longer. In fact, I think the first biography of Alexander the Great comes some 400 years later. This is how Greco-Roman history looks. People don't realize that. We think um, people think themselves clever and they look back to Christian history and think the gospels are written 20, 30 years after the events. That's ridiculous. They can't possibly be reliable. But I got news for you. That is par for the course, even worse than that. 400 years for your first biography. It takes centuries before legendary development to come and swamp the historical narrative and to change it. We're talking the Gospels themselves at most, you know, 20, 30 years after the life of Jesus. That's A. N. Sherwin White wrote, a, um, he was a specialist in Greco-Roman 
biographies, he's like, that, that's just not enough time for legendary accrual to happen. You don't have, you can't generate a legend and have it wipe out the historical core and replace it in 20, 30 years. And as I've already pointed out, 1 Corinthians 15 is a list that dates likely within months, if not within five years of, of the events. And I would say the same about Mark. Um, not the gospel itself, but Mark is um, it's John Mark of, of the book of Acts, and it's probably Peter's testimony being relayed to John Mark. And what we find is that Mark keeps, when he's talking about Passion Week, Mark taught, refers to the high priest, the high priest, but he doesn't mention him by name. Now, that's interesting because if I'm telling you about historical events and I refer to the president or the president, assuming my readers know who I'm talking about, I'm likely writing during the time these events are, are taking place. So it's interesting. There's some evidence to suggest that, that parts of Mark, at least, are older than the actual uh, canonical gospel itself. But you're right. We have all of these manuscripts that attest to historical figures. Why did we put a damper on the Gospels? That's a good question for an atheist. Um, Plato didn't have any documents, by the way. Plato, uh, I'm sorry, Socrates didn't have any um, documents, by the way. But nobody doubts the historicity of Socrates. We accept fully what Plato says about Socrates. And I think a playwright, Aristophanes, you know, makes some sarcastic references to him and some others, Aristotle later on. But if Socrates wrote anything, it doesn't exist. Yet we don't doubt the historicity there. And I know that um, one who really capitalized on making a big point about this was uh, Josh McDowell in his famous two-volume work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He catalogs this in, in uh, very, very gritty detail. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Sir? You? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so um, she's making reference to, I think it's Matthew, that, that makes a note about the cover story for why the tomb is found empty. Here's what's really interesting about this, is that nobody sought to provide an alternative explanation for the empty tomb. That's, that's significant. And we're talking about from the very enemies, the ones that crucified him. If Jesus was still lying in his tomb... You can bet the authorities would have exhumed the body and paraded it through the streets and said, Here, look at this fraud. But they didn't. They came up with a cover story. Well, the, you know, the guards fell asleep and that sort of thing. So it's an acknowledgement that the tomb was empty. And how you want to explain that, of course, I think naturally goes to the resurrection narrative that we believe the disciples' original testimony um, but that's what New Testament scholars are trying to do now. So you have New Testament scholars that don't want to commit to Christianity for whatever reason. They're saying things like, well, maybe Jesus was reburied. 
Maybe there was a one year of mourning and then Jesus' body was reburied and bones put into an ossuary. Or maybe he was buried in a shallow grave and his body was eaten by wild dogs. These are serious scholarly alternatives. And they're not way in outer space here. I mean, they're right when you're talking about ordinary criminals. Criminals that were executed didn't get honorable burials. But Jesus had a particular sympathizer from the Jewish Sanhedrin, which, you, you know, which seals the deal there. So, yes, I think the story is interesting in that it gets us to see that those that put Jesus to death um, themselves are acknowledging the tomb is empty. Yeah, I'm, I would see it as one of those things where, okay, if Matthew's going to include it in his gospel, then they, they certainly can go and talk to the authorities going, why are you, so, so is that to say the tomb is empty? You agree with that? And so on and so forth. Um, a cynic might say, well, they, they created that cover story, you know, it's propaganda. They just simply made it up. But I think it's the fact that it's included, which they didn't have to include, makes them vulnerable to criticism that way by those authorities. So the fact that they're mentioned, it's a good point that uh, it's likely historical. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir, in the back. Sure. I'll have an answer that'll just come up too. That, that God has a what? Enemy. An enemy, yes. Okay. I know a little bit about that. All right, so the question that was asked is, believe in God, you likely believe in a sort of counterpart, and the reality of evil all around us seems to bespeak the idea that there is this counterpart. So if you're going to doubt the existence of God, given the reality and the undoubtability of evil, how do we wrestle with that if it didn't originate from God's counterpart, the devil? Okay, did I capture that right? All right, um, I don't believe the exist. First of all, I don't think the existence of God entails the existence of the devil. I think we have good reasons to believe Satan exists that I put in my book. If you would like to explore that, um, my favorite argument is a historical argument from the lips and practices of Jesus himself. I think that reveals that there is, through the exorcisms he performed and the fact that he was raised from the dead and validation and vindication of his personal claims and his activities, shows by extension, that there was such a being. Um, I think that uh, what a naturalist would want to say in response would be, first of all, I don't need to designate this as moral evil in the world. I only have to designate it as suffering and pain and things I don't like. The wickedness that people do, people do that. 
But things like earthquakes and tsunamis and Hurricane Dorian and all of that, the, the natural events, uh, the only thing evil about those is that they inflict suffering when people are in their pathway. Diseases, the, the whole lot. So for the naturalist, I don't think they would be moved by that, this suggestion that a counterpart of God is entailed in some way by the presence of evil. Probably for the same reason that, you know, I don't know if just the fact that goods happen to people and pleasures entail the existence of God. I, I don't think that would be the case. Someone's about to take off. <laughs> um, so I don't know, other than how to just basically say, I'm not so sure that's a line of questioning I would take with an atheist because I don't think the reality of evil bespeaks a devil because when the devil himself fell from grace, there wasn't an evil acting on him from without. So not every instance of evil is sourced by an external source. And because of that, I, I don't think the atheist, I think the atheist would be right not to commit to the idea that there's a devil just because there's evil in the world. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the question is, why do we have to engage in intellectual discussions with those of contrary worldviews when it's the Holy Spirit who moves? And um, from your practical standpoint, uh, when you're actually have, trying to have an intellectual conversation, you feel like it just, it's just a bunch of back and forth and you end up not feeling so smart about yourself at the end of the day and generating maybe more heat and no light kind of a situation. Okay. I would say that I'm a philosopher. I get paid to do that. <laughs> if I were a lawyer, I would twist it and, you know, <clears throat> try to turn that into something malevolent. Lawyers in here, I hope. <laughs> but at any rate, <laughs> I, I mentioned a little bit this on, on Sunday. And one thing I wanted to say is know that you can't know it all. And that I, I don't think that um, being prepared to interact and respond to someone requires you to have some kind of PhD or high-level amount of knowledge. Um, <clears throat> I do think that we have a responsibility to have some idea, even if it's just inchoate, even if it's just basic and fundamental. Like uh, nature, it, it doesn't look like these things happen by accident. Um, the, it looks like the, the, the constants and quantities within the universe, uh, they, they couldn't have just happened to be conducive to the formation of life. So... You know, I have to get too technical or whatever. The, the argument I shared at the beginning, unless you get into the science itself, wasn't technical. You know, if the physical universe began to exist, something else caused it. 
the universe began to exist, therefore something else caused it. You know, that's, that's, I think that's a conversation that, that can be had. The why question. Um, why do this? Well, the thing is, is uh, first of all, it's emulated for us in the New Testament. There's not a disciple you'll find in the New Testament where if they're pressed to evangelize someone of a contrary worldview, where they step back and say, I'm just going to let the Spirit take over. The, pe- the preaching in, in Acts, Peter as well as, as Paul, uh, validate this fact. Paul himself stood at the Areopagus. He stood in, the, the, in Athens uh, amidst the temples, the pagan temples, and he was versed in their literature. He said, you, you yourselves... You know, he cites um, Aratus of Crete and Epimenides, or Epimenides of Crete and Aratus of Cilicia, where there's this quote, to the unknown God. And Paul quotes that and uses it to his advantage to basically say, you guys are groping after God. Well, let me tell you about God, and it's validated by the resurrection. Uh, so all of the pre- it's all emulated in the New Testament, even by instruction. Peter says, be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies you with gentleness and reverence. Paul talks about being equipped. Um, Also in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Uh, Jude says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Time and again, the calling is to to be aware. You don't have to be, you know, an expert or well-versed as Paul was, but you have to have some semblance of how to interact and engage in these kind of conversations. It's the same reason why we don't say that about missionary work, because we could, we could probably say this, suggest the same thing and say, well, I don't need to go to Ethiopia and try to reach them and help them because I'll just let the spirit move and let the spirit do it. The scripture makes it very clear that we're the body of Christ and we have that responsibility, uh, both materially but also intellectually, because that's actually part of spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, that when you t- we, we often hear that phrase, you know, the weapons are not carnal, and um, they're spiritual warfare weapons. But he goes on to tell you what the weapon is. We demolish arguments, he says, that raise itself against God. So really doing spiritual warfare involves us then combating even intellectually on occasion. Not to be good at it, not to be experts at it, but to um, do what we can to at least have a conversation, but also trying to develop the wherewithal. If the conversation is going nowhere, know when and how to cut it off and to shift it or to, to, to do whatever. Do you want to follow up, Dave? seen that happen a lot of times. Um, for whatever reason, somebody's had a question and they haven't encountered somebody who gave them any kind of reasonable answer. And then we talked about it and said, well, here's, here's something to think about. Whatever. Oh, nobody's ever told me that before. Oh, and then within a month or two, they become a Christian. You know, and this can go on years, many years in somebody's life. So <clears throat> I think Remember what he said. It's a spiritual war. Don't expect to win the war all the time. Like, there's going to be people you talk to, and it's always, it's always going to be this. 
But but God still calls us to do battle, to still try. If if you know, he told Jeremiah, what did he tell him? He said, Go talk to those people, and guess what? They're not gonna listen to you. But if you don't tell them, their blood yeah. is on your head. So it's kinda like we know people aren't going to listen, but we felt a responsibility to try to explain the gospel. So just to, to try to um, relay some of the fruits of this. Uh, I want to give you a, a high-profile example that you might be able to do. If you have Netflix, um, I think the film might still be on there, but it's called The Case for Christ. It's the story of Lee Strobel, and Lee Strobel himself was a, a, he was a journalist, atheist, and um, he deliberately set out to disprove Christianity, and he ran into New Testament scholars and philosophers that had these dialogues with him, and that's what brought him to faith. And now he's like one of the world's leading um, popular level apologists. And uh, they just opened up a new institution in, in Colorado, I think, dedicated to apologetics at, at a Colorado university, which is great. Um, but yeah, you can check out that movie. It's great just to see his perspective and what convinced him and um, how people talked to him, talked him through it. Um, homework for you. <laughs> okay, yes. A few minutes left. Right. Why they actually believe what they believe. And they're all, my kids are all strong Christians, but it's their own faith that has been tested, basically, through other people questioning their faith. Yeah, that's, and that's the New Testament attitude as well. Um, we're real big right now on uh, the movements, various movements of, of worship music and such. And they're, I think they're doing a great service. You know, they're, they're providing a lot of good music and such. But we're starting to fall prey once again to the idea that it's emotion that carries us, that we, you know, we might have a, a personal experience and we're jazzed up when we go to church and, that, and we ride that. But we can only ride that for so long for the same reason that being married, you're not constantly in that honeymoon phase. You know, I'm sad to say, <laughs> but the reality is, is uh, other things carry you along, your commitments and so forth. You love in other ways, and the feelings keep coming and coming. And it's kind of the same thing, but the New Testament, the way it portrays it, is precisely that. It's like, it never does it say, well, you need to go get another fix, or you need to go get filled by the Spirit to keep you going. The advice is, is always the same. It's um, you need to not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. And so there's this insistence that you need to know the truth and beware. You know, the devil can even deceive the elect and, and all of that. It's like there's always, the, always these concerns that the dismantling of the Christian will happen from the head down, not from the heart up. And it's that you see that, which is why, um, <clears throat> you know, it begins with the renewing of your mind. And we love the Lord not only with our body and soul and heart, but with our mind. So that's part of the package. And practically speaking, that's exactly what happens. When you have that, what St. John of the Cross used to call the dark night of the soul, um, the mind takes over. It's like you know better. You know that God is real and there's good evidence and Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, that's the appeal that the preaching of Acts 
consistently does. It's never, well, didn't you have a good experience? You know, you, you find that once in um, the road to Emmaus, right? Do not our hearts burn within us? Uh, but never is that the basis of truth. It's always test all things and pointing to the resurrection and, you know, the evidence of creation, which Paul talks about in Romans 1, the evidence of conscience in Romans 2. So, yes, I agree with that. Yes. The one world religion, is that our biggest battle that we're facing today? That takes me back a little bit. I hadn't heard that since the first Bush administration. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, there used to be talk about one world government and concerns about that. No, no, here, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm concerned about, and I won't name them by name. Um, I'm concerned about a particular, <clears throat> I'm, I'm concerned about a particular aggregate of people who identify by certain capital letters. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. And it has to do with identity. I don't like identity politics. But I think right now that's kind of our biggest enemy because they're winning battles politically. They're harming Christians individually. And I worry about my brothers in Christ like Pastor Richie for someday. Uh, they're going to come a knock and wanting to know what you're teaching. And are you saying anything against these particular people? I'm worried about the ethical dynamics of what's going on today, the ethico-political scenario. But the one-world system, yeah, that, it, that, that takes me back because there, there were, were concerns about whether um, this was going to usher in the Antichrist and all of that, and there was a lot of end-time scaring. I remember that old 70s movie, <laughs> Thief in the Night, yeah, I used to scare, you know, scare us to death and that sort of thing. But um, I, I'm not, yeah, I don't think that is the problem. Revelation does speak of when it refers to the beasts that are going to overwhelm the saints. It's spoken of in two ways. One is political, geopolitical, and the other one is definitely religious, such that there's even a reference to false prophet. So I do think that and we're kind of seeing this with that movement I alluded to, where there is a sort of uh, religious affiliation with it. We're co-opting churches. Entire denominations are on board. It's going to become religiously affiliated more and more. And it's right now separating the Christ followers from the not-so-Christ followers, I think. So, uh, yes, I'm somewhat concerned, but not maybe in that historical way, yes. Yes. Okay, so you're asking, you'll have interactions where people are relativistic, particularly with respect to truth, where there is no truth. All right. I'll give you a, a couple of ways to interact with that. Uh, first of all, it's what we call a self-defeating proposition, right, where somebody says there is no truth, by which you follow up with the obvious question, uh, is that true? 
Because if it's true, there's at least one thing that is true. But if it's false, then there's truth. So it, it, it can't survive its own demise. So, no, I would say that um, if truth, which is defined as the correspondence of a belief with how the world is in some way, in its, in its related way, if it, if it corresponds and matches up, that's what is true. And it seems to me that's what's happening. So when you say something like, um, this person over here is undergoing surgery, or this person over here is, just got married, or this person over here is um, suffering, uh, you're declaring things about the world, and if it lines up, if the, what's happening in the world lines up with the proposition, then that's what truth is. So there are a couple of different ways someone might go about denying truth. If they're enamored with Eastern tradition, or they don't want to buy into the West's logical construct, um, it may be very difficult to have conversations with them in that regard, and there's a far more fundamental problem uh, to wrestle with. I would recommend YouTubing something... Uh, an acquaintance of mine just put out Paul Copan uh, on YouTube. It's, it's, uh, I think it's entitled True for You But Not for Me, where he talks about this very thing. That's a free resource on YouTube. It is based, I think, on a book he wrote of the same name, C-O-P-A-N, Paul Copan. And um, my old uh, uh, mentor, Frank Beckwith, wrote a book with Greg Kokel called Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. <laughs> which is also about the same subject matter. But when people are paying lip service to this idea that there's no truth, they don't mean that. Because if there is no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as conversation. We clearly understand conversation. Words have meanings and uh, logical structure. So those things are true. Those things are real. So um, if, if truth doesn't exist, then neither do the fundamental laws of logic. And so we can't even be coherent. The fact that we are coherent and can carry on meaningful, meaningful conversations and whatnot entails truth, that there are logical rules and principles that, um, that guide our communication and behavior and whatnot. So check out those resources. I think those will help you. And, uh, yeah, that's a significant problem. I don't run into too many people that are willing to just outright say there's no truth. Yeah, like it's your truth, like it's private, but um, that's strange. That's a strange credo because imagine saying this about anything else, like um, someone winning uh, a board game, something trivial like that. Hey, you know, you you won. Well, that's your truth, but my truth is I won. You know, or go up to a banker and say I I need a million dollars. That's my truth. That's, you know, I, I don't know how that could be regulated intellectually. It, obviously, there are boundaries to that. And if there are obvious boundaries to that, then it's not actually true that truth is just up for grabs. Yeah, right. Frank, yes, Frank Turek. I, um, had the, I, I always run into him at conferences I just had my picture with him again. I'm like, I get my picture with you. And he wanted his picture with me, so it was kind of cool. But yeah, his um, book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, co-authored with the, now the late Norman Geisler, yeah, uh, who just passed away a month ago. Yeah, so the Christian apologetic world lost a great mind.